We're recording on Gadigal land and we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and pay our respects to their culture and elders. I'm Karina May. I'm Claire Fletcher. And we love rom-coms. They're our favourite kind of love stories. We love reading and watching rom-coms so much we started writing our own. We're always chasing that rom-com feeling. You know the one. The warm and fuzzy one. And we might not be experts, but by God, we're enthusiastic. Okay, so we spoke about Emily Henry's latest, not even released yet because it's not out yet, but the book that's coming out in 2024, Funny Story. Um, And at the time of recording, the cover had not been revealed and it now has, Claire, been revealed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's something specific on the cover that I was keen to talk about, which has a lot of book talk coming out of the woodwork to say their piece. And that is... The yellow crux. Mm. Yeah, you're going to have to explain this for me. As we know, I am not on TikTok. So Talk a baby through it. So when we spoke about this, Claire said she thought that crocs were for chefs exclusively. That's or, my experience. Yeah, and I think a crocs guy. And kids. And kids. What are those? What are they called? Gibbets? What are the things? What are the things? Giblets. Giblets. Gibbets. Oh, God, I hope that's not a word for something else. <laughs> Oh, they're like little charms you can hang on your Crocs, right? Yeah. So they're now cool. Um, So I don't know how you missed that memo, uh, but they're worn largely by Gen Z. Um, So I think Emily, you know, I don't know how much she had uh, input over the cover design, but she is M-Hen, so I assume probably more than most of your authors would have say in their cover. Well, coming from our theory that M. Hen is the Taylor Swift of authors, I think she's paying attention to these details. I don't think there's there's any uh, slips of attention here. And I think in the Easter egging that we had discussed, there was, um, that was included in the Easter egging, um, this like fierce yellow colour as well. So I wanted to kind of discuss why this choice. Um, now, on BookTok, there's comments like, that's so real of him, and people are literally going gaga and falling for him, just literally, uh, his name's Miles, by the way, the love interest, that Miles is wearing Crocs on the cover. How can they interpret this from, like, a cartoon man of a character they haven't met yet? Well, I think as well, in contrast to Daphne, who's also bracing the cover, she's wearing heels. So I think... Like, there's been a lot of attention given to the footwear. And also, Miles is kind of, like, sitting up at the bar. And I should say there's two covers. So I'm... Mm, US and UK. Yeah, yeah, specifically talking about the US cover. He's slumped over the kind of this, like, kitchen bar. And people are like, love myself, you know, a sincere authentic M-Hen man. <laughs> this is a man that's given up on himself. He's so real for wearing Crocs. And it just got me thinking. I Firstly, I just love this. I love this, you know, it's one of the great, many great things about book talk <laughs> um, and also bookster as well. So it begs the question, Claire, what does footwear say about our heroes? Do you have any strong stance on this, especially considering I forced this segment? <laughs> Well, I feel like I need to opt out sort of because I'm not a shoe gal. You I, don't wear them 
Or? No, I mean, I, I have to wear shoes, obviously. I'm not one of these barefoot people slapping my bare soles around the streets of Newtown, which drives me and my husband absolutely insane. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But you're from Queensland. I thought you guys had leathery kind of soles and oh, look, I mean, the hot, steamy pavement. That's what uh, <laughs> Trent Dalton has told me. I did spend most of my high school years wearing double pluggers. Um, it's true. What are double pluggers? Thongs. Oh. Rubber thongs. Oh, okay. That's a state. For our American listeners, I'm sure there's a lot of you. <laughs> yeah. Flip-flops. Uh, but I'm a pretty tall person and correspondingly, I have enormous feet. I can barely get women's shoes, Karina. So I don't buy into the whole shoes as a, you know, key to my personality kind of thing. I'm not a heels gal. And so, yeah, I know some people are very invested in shoes. It's not a big, not a big thing for me. Mm. But... You know, I think there's a lot to be said for just some clean, well-kept shoes. I like an inner man. Inner man, it's saying, I've got my shit together. When you come back to my place, you're not going to find, you know, my... Mattress on the floor. Astro Boy Duna. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very specific, pointed (laughs) reference, to be honest. (laughs) There's some heat in that, Karina. I feel like that didn't come out of nowhere. Let's not start reminiscing about boys' share houses. That is a dark place to go. But, yeah, in my current work in progress, which is set on an island, um, we are shoeless a lot. And I think I've written more about footwear in this book than I have in any other thing I've worked on. So maybe this is why the Crocs kind of spoke to me. I'm making conscious choice about footwear and what my characters are wearing. Are they getting back to nature, connecting to the earth? They are, Claire. Mm. They might be. They might be. There might be a character, you know, seeing her toes for the first time. <laughs> Whereas my characters is just like, is he wearing blundstones or RMs? It's a pretty limited um, choice <laughs> Are there. they scuffed or polished? Exactly. Uh, but even that, you know, how, how yeah, as you said, how the shoes are kept says a lot about a character. Yeah, definitely. You've got the interloper, right, in Five mm. Bush Weddings. Charlie comes along mm. and he's wearing brand new RM Williams boots. Mm. That's, a, that's a red flag <laughs> right there. Whereas Jono... He's got his worn-in old work blundstones and he's got his town boots as well, but they're probably a few years old and he Mm. polishes them up for an event. In Never Ever Forever, actually, so my December release, the main character, Rosie, has starch white converse. So, again, maybe I do have a thing for footwear because they are a huge part of her personality, her sneakers. today's trope forbidden love so i think we wanted to talk about forbidden love because it seems like a bit more skewing to romance which maybe skews a bit more to smut and less of the com yes i think both of us have just done a flurry of googling trying to put this episode together um blaming each other for choosing the trope we can't quite remember which past versions of ourselves wrote this in our google doc (laughs) I think we started with wanting to talk about Romeo and Juliet, which we will get to. Yeah. I mean, it's the archetypal love story. And I think it raises the issue of where we draw the line between romance and rom-com. I mean, obviously, comedy is the delineating factor. But, you know, I think we are talking quite a bit about some straight romance stories. And we will be particularly today because, as we'll see, forbidden love stories are often more serious and they're less jovial and jokey for some pretty good reasons. 
And I'm excited to delve into the reasons for why love is forbidden, including, yeah, social norms, race, class. There's a lot of different reasons. So for that alone, it's quite a meaty thing to dive into. Yeah. So one of the definitions that I found for forbidden love is On Wikipedia? I can't remember exactly where. <laughs> should be citing my sources. Again, we're not the academic version of this podcast. <laughs> we're but the vibes. We are the vibes. But forbidden love is a story where social norms or taboos uh, try to prevent two individuals from openly being in a relationship. So lovers might be forced apart by families, culture, geographical distance, time. Health, which mm. is one of my examples coming up. And sometimes another way of putting forbidden love is the idea of star-crossed lovers, which mm. is a direct reference to the original text, Romeo and Juliet. By a little guy you might have heard of. Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're going to delve into that a bit now and then. Um, I think we made a promise a few episodes ago about having a little chat about Mr. Shakespeare. The bard. Um, yeah, so when Googling... Forbidden Love. <laughs> I'm laughing already because I can't even say the title of this text. <laughs> Let's uh, just say uh, we're going to kick things off with the greatest taboo of all. Incest. <laughs> no, we're not going to go very deep on incest. What is, what is this that you've put here, Karina? You need to say it out loud. Stepbrother Dearest. And is that a title of it or is that a kind of subtrope? It's a title of a book, of, yeah. a, of a best-selling, I should tell you the year. I'm not sure. Um, I really just put that there because it's a good uh, segue to talk about Clueless. Yes. <laughs> so I think Clueless, I've always felt a bit funny in my tummy about that love story. I don't know how you, they're obviously not blood relatives, share and Josh. Mm. Again, they come from two different worlds. Hers is a clueless world. His is, <laughs> his is a intellectual helps his stepfather in business worlds. So there's the coming together of two different worlds. Uh, but the forbidden aspect is more the feelings that Cher is having about why she shouldn't go there with her brother, stepbrother, who she's always detested and has been antagonised by, or has she? I guess it's a testament to those actors, Alicia Silverstone and Paul Rudd, who does Paul not age. Rudd. I know, but I don't think we're supposed to say that, right? Is that... Oh, are we some... objectifying him I, too much? I think so. Oh, sorry, Paul. <laughs> but it's true. But it's a testament to them and their chemistry that I still feel fine about Clueless? I don't know. I mean, I'm probably more squeaked out. The age difference is also a little bit not great. He's in college, she's in high school. I think because her being a school student was so part of her character mm. um, from the fabulous outfits, um, those knee-high socks and... Oh, the oh. computer. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Putting those dream outfits together. Why doesn't together. that exist yet? I know. We've come so far and yet we still don't have the outfit choosing computer. Mm. Maybe that's where I was getting my funny tummy feelings from then, the age gap, or just the way it was positioned. I'm sure in terms well, of years, but um, I mean, where they is, are in their life. It is someone who's technically in your family. like that's. And I'm trying to think how the relationship works because Clueless is, of course, based on Emma by Jane Austen. And I'm trying to remember the nature of the relationship between Emma and Mr Knightley. I think... I have to I think he's quickly. a family friend. 
I just had this flashback to watching Emma on a plane. And I think it was probably... The Gwyneth Paltrow, Emma? The Gwyneth Paltrow version. Sorry, I should have said that. Because there's also the more recent Anya Taylor-Joy version, which was very good. I haven't seen that, but I have a travel diary of that trip. And in... <laughs> In the travel diary, I've documented watching Emma and I've written, Braddy's little babe couldn't act <laughs> as a sentence in my travel diary. How old would you have been at this point, Karina? That feels like high school diary to me. It, yeah, I think maybe eight. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was starting to get into clever wordplay at 14. You were, were you thinking about writing a letter into Dolly or Girlfriend? I see voice. I, that's all I can as voice. <laughs> There's conviction. <laughs> I mean, I would have read the shit out of that in a Dear Dolly letter, let's face it. Sorry, I, I just, I went straight back there when you said Emma. Yeah, fair enough. Not the best Emma. The Gwyneth Paltrow Emma is not the best Emma. But again, there's something charming about it. Mm. And I guess that is like Emma as a character is pure charm. And so you really need someone pretty charismatic. Mm. I do love that thing. And I hope she still does this, although who knows the way she's on record talking about how she just doesn't eat. Um, well, she has bone broth. Moon broth. Yeah. Moon, moon broth, bone broth, <laughs> moon broth. Oh my god, I kind of want to bottle that. But I've always loved that story about how Gwyneth would have one cigarette a week. Mm. Just imagining her, you know, slogging through all of her grueling training sessions and you know subsisting on a cup of bone broth each day, and then on a Sunday night she's just like out there on the lawn lighting up. Well, it's. It's a display of restraint and indulgence all in one, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. She is a walking contradiction, that woman. Mm. So some more examples, Claire, of forbidden love. I know we came up with a bit of a list, so I don't know if we want to run through it chronologically or just what tickles our fancy. Well, do you want to drill down a bit into Romeo and Juliet? Because it's, it's the main story. And I know that you want to talk a little bit about that later on in terms of now and then. Um, I was just thinking maybe we could talk about some of the adaptations and also the sort of retellings that come up of Romeo and Juliet. Chief among them, Baz Luhrmann's 1996 film version of Romeo and Juliet, which I'm pretty sure was a a sexual awakening for many of people of our generation. I think that that movie could just be renamed Fish Tank and... (laughs) That's all I need. Leonardo DiCaprio, when he was hot. That was pre-Titanic, right? Or post? It was pre-Titanic. Mm. Yeah. God, it's it's it almost grieves me to look at his face in that film and then see what he has become. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, I know you're not really on TikTok, um, but that AI technology, the age filter, oh. um, where they take celebrities to show us how accurate the AI filter is Mm. and they have done that filter on a young Leo and spat out an image that looks a lot like him but I will say the technology has those real images of him so you telling me that it's not referencing those yeah that's what I tell myself anyway Romeo and Juliet is not a rom-com in any form why would Does you say that? Why, why would you possibly think that, Claire? Well, I mean, I think the statute of limitations is at a point on this one where we can 
confidently assume that most of our listeners know that Romeo and Juliet ends with a double suicide. Mm. So if, if you think of it all That's the once, not a happily ever after in case you were, you know, confused. Do you think the one suicide or one or two deaths would have done it? But just really... <laughs> Are we going to have to put a trigger warning on this? Can we joke about this? I don't know. Yeah, we can. It's Friday. But I will say in Baz's version of Romeo and Juliet... There is quite a bit of humour carrying it through. We've got really great side characters. Um, Mercutio, very charming, mm. Um, mm. also hot. Does he end up dead too? Yeah. yeah they're all dead. They're all dead. Um, How many times can we say that word? <laughs> I think it's Benvolio, who's one of the Montagues. Again, like Romeo's homies are not the sharpest tools in the shed. Mm. It's part of their charm. They have sharp knives, They're though. just bros. Mm. But, of course, we have Miriam Margulies as the nurse. I reckon one of her best roles. And mm. she brings a lot of comic timing to that role. She's great. I just think they're... Like, Romeo and Juliet is one of those archetypal stories that we've seen play out in many, many other stories. Obviously, on the musical front, West Side Story, which I think you're not a big expert on. I have never been to a production and I haven't seen the movie production of... Have you? I've seen, yeah, the, the old movie. Apparently the, the remake that they did quite recently was pretty good. I don't know why I have that gap. You know how occasionally you just have those knowledge gaps? Like Yeah, mine is TikTok, remember? Yeah, that's <laughs> true. You're right. My brain can't fit at all. I've got So those, you're not a musical girly? I've got those mammals <laughs> to keep track of. It's an inside <laughs> joke, guys. You don't like musicals? I love musicals. That's, that's what's surprising, that West Side Story is just mm. not there for me. Um, yeah. I guess it's kind of melodramatic. It's got some good songs, but yeah, it, I guess it comes down to it's more about class and gangs rather than the warring families that we have in the original Romeo and Juliet. And I guess it's it's a real shorthand as well to talk about Romeo and Juliet. So we've seen a lot of songwriters use that in songs, obviously the very famous Dire Straits, Romeo and Juliet, or our girl, Taylor Swift, mm. Love Story. Don't sing a line of that because we definitely cannot afford Tay-Tay. <laughs> no, we can't. Um, but you were going to take us down the romanticy path, which I had never thought about Twilight as romanticy, but I suppose it is exactly that. I, that's what I was going to say. I, I think to recast like older texts into that, we're only kind of looking at newer texts as romanticy genre, but that fit squarely there. Yeah. It's, I guess we have new language to describe mm. that genre. Yes, before women lusted after dragons, we lusted after vampires, apparently. And that's what's interesting when you're writing for market. You never quite know what the next vampire, what the next dragon or merman is going to be, right? So Has anyone was... actually done merman romanticy? Because I have to say, when Twilight was buzzing, I was like, I'm going to do a story and it's going to be like Gossip Girl meets Mermaids. It's, it's going to be... There's yeah. definitely mermaids out there, okay. for sure. Good. Yeah. But yeah, that's the whole, I'm a human, you're a monster, we can't do this. You will kill me. <laughs> like, there's not much forbidden, more forbidden than that when you feel like you're going to end up as your love interest snack, you know? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, those are some real stakes. Mm, Vampires but the also don't like stakes. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> That's clear. Honey <laughs> on a Friday. I think as well, forbidden love is the whole 
temptation of what you shouldn't have, right? Yeah. And I'm just thinking of the Twilight cover and how it's got that. I don't even know if the, this is the recent cover. This is just the cover that I know and the edition that I have is the apple. The apple. And we all know what that's a symbol of, the Adam and Eve apple. <laughs> so just, we're not going to get all religious yeah, Stephanie, podcasts on Yeah, Stephanie Meyer didn't like, she kept things pretty recognisable in the references that she was using. <laughs> mm. Did you go on to read all of the books in the Twilight series? Yes, of course I did. Mm. Yes. And the movies, how did you feel they stacked up with the books? I have watched the first Twilight film probably more than any other movie I've ever seen in my life. This is the first time I'm admitting this publicly. I love it and I think you're not alone because for some reason it's a comfort watch for people. Do you know what, why you go back to it? Oh, I don't go back to it anymore. This oh, was a very specific... sure. <laughs> no, I haven't. Well, when that whole... Uh, Bella, where you been? Look at thing blew up like a while ago. I was like, <laughs> with your lines. <laughs> I thought about going back to it, but yeah, it's a very particular time in my life where I was coming off a breakup, and I don't know who I flogged this DVD from, but it was just sitting in my laptop, and every night I would just put it on to go to sleep. So I can't remember what happens at the end of that movie, but I have seen the beginning. And you know at some point there is a little vampire baby. (laughs) (laughs) It was only the first film. There were no babies in that Mm. one. But, yeah, I don't know. And they had such a specific look, those movies. Like it was a real blue filter or something going on. The music was really good. They were attractive people that ended up looking really unattractive because for some reason, for all the money they made, they'd never put any of it back into decent wigs. (laughs) What is about wigs in that movie? Their hair is so bad. I also love the off-screen romance, the Kristen Stewart and Rob Pattinson. Mm. So part of me broke when, you know, that wasn't to be. I love to well, romanticise all parts. There were a lot of fans who mm. don't believe that they ever broke up. Mm. Yeah. It's an yeah. interesting subset of the population. I wonder if the that's Twilight. made it to book talk, actually. That would be an interesting little rabbit hole for another time. <laughs> So romanticy, forbidden love, I think comes up quite a lot just because, you know, there's normally a fantastical, is that what you even say, world, and there's commonly uh, like a harem or reverse harem as well Mm. Um, and commonly fish out of water trope, um, which, you know, the fish shouldn't be on land or <laughs> the human shouldn't be in the sea if we're talking about mermaids. So yeah. I think that's huge there. Yeah, I, think, I suppose like paranormal is huge. Yeah, paranormal. Particularly in like the, the spicier stuff, right? Mm. Yeah, it's not my area of expertise, but I am aware that it exists. Mermaid sex is not? It's making people a lot of money apparently. <laughs> well, the wonderful keynote speaker at RWA. Stephanie, I know, that's who I was thinking of. Her, she does a lot of werewolves. <sighs> I know. Mm. I've still got to read one of her books for sure. We also wanted to talk about queer love stories or specifically forbidden love stories. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's it's a, a lot of the, the queer stories that we've had to this point have revolved around forbidden love, particularly, you know, period set pieces. Um, so obviously things like Brokeback Mountain came up. Um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Carol, which was the Todd Haynes film based on Patricia Highsmith's book, The Price of Salt. Um, 
Yeah, I guess for a lot of the culture that we see around romantic relationships in queer couples, they're in a world where their love is forbidden Mm. and they don't always have a happy ending. And I think, you know, those stories can be very powerful. There's an inherent tension in them. But I think queer readers are ready to embrace more joyful stories, different stories. And I think... That is a trope that has definitely been done. Yeah. I mean, Red, White and Royal Blue, that's why I think it's a refreshing read as well because although it's a queer love story, the forbidden love element doesn't come from their queerness. Mm. It comes from the fact that they are from two different worlds, royal family and... uh, presidential family is that what you say it's political political yeah Yeah. the first family the first family presidential family (laughs) (laughs) i live in the states i also wanted to talk about the big sick again which i mentioned last episode again for a reminder one of my favorite rom-coms and claire's gonna link in the show notes where to watch that Mm -hmm. because i would like a rewatch. But that one there covers the racial aspect. So a Pakistani-American with, you know, a strict Pakistani family wanting to set up their son and him finding a nice white girl. So a lot of that movie is obviously hiding in the relationship from his family and then the big reveal causing all sorts of chaos. So the definition of... A forbidden romance. Do you have any other examples of forbidden love in some of our favourite texts that are racially? I've been trying to think about this. Um, I mean, one that came up a lot is the recent film Loving, which is about an interracial marriage in the US in the, say, 50s or 60s. No, there's got to be more. I mean, I guess something like... Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. My mum loves Sydney Portier. So does my mum. Yeah, what is that? She loves Tom He's Selleck. He's gorgeous. Tom Selleck and Sydney Portier, mm. <laughs> specifically. Tom Selleck, the moustache. Oh, the amount of times we watch Three Men and a Little Baby, Three Men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'm here for it. Yeah, it stands up, I think. Mm. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I haven't watched it lately. I think it does. And if it doesn't, we'll catch that on now and then. (laughs) (laughs) I also wanted to talk about Five Feet Apart because that's an interesting one. I think that came out mm, maybe 2018, 2019, not too long ago. But the main characters in that movie have cystic fibrosis. Um, So Five Feet Apart is a reference to um, the fact that people with cystic fibrosis shouldn't uh, be interacting for immunity reasons. Um, So these are two patients uh, who fall in love in hospital and... Can never touch each other. Well, you know, they do risk it, (laughs) to give it away. Um, But can you imagine the tension from that? Right, and I guess that's why this trope is such a playground for storytellers because, Mm. you know, you have the obstacles keeping a couple apart and you can't have a rom-com without obstacles. It often necessitates some secrecy. If the lovers are determined to be together, they've got to kind of do it 
they can't be together openly. So they've got to sneak around. That, again, dials up the desire and the tension and, yeah, the heat sometimes. The, the stakes are high. And, I mean, in five feet apart, it's a life or death stake, right? Mm. Romeo and Juliet, it kind of <laughs> is too. The other one that I thought of was the second season of Bridgerton, which is obviously the huge Netflix adaptation of Julia Quinn's Regency novels. And the second season is based on the book The Viscount Who Loved Me. Now, I haven't read this book, but my understanding is that the series obviously um, is cast in a very diverse way, which isn't the case in the books. But I guess it's lovely that even though there is a forbidden love story in this season, it's not because of the race of the couple involved. It's more about family relationships and so the, the Viscount is kind of courting a young woman and ends up having massive sexual tension with her sister. So I guess that sister relationship is something that comes up a bit in forbidden love stories or mm. siblings. Um, bro code. Bro code. Sisters before misters. Mm. Blood is thicker than water. <laughs> All the things. Yeah. And then, that sounded a bit more play school, <laughs> through the round window. <laughs> and if it isn't our old mate Shakespeare coming to step into the now and then pen, <laughs> the ring, now and then the ring. So, no surprise, Romeo and Juliet's a little dated, <laughs> as far back as the 16th century, I believe. So, it was always going to be a little bit problematic even not written by Shakespeare. Fun fact, Juliet is 13. <laughs> the same age as our little boy in Love Actually that we just spoke about last episode. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, we thought Kira Knightley was a child bride. Yeah. Again, in Now and Then, we always seem to come up with these persistent males. <laughs> like, Romeo doesn't leave her alone. He's per persistent. Except when he's banished. I mean, he's <laughs> banished. <laughs> but I guess, yeah, that's not his choice. You're right. Yeah, they're very young. God, what were they doing getting married? Shelf love. <laughs> Woo, come on down. <laughs> <laughs> what are you reading, Karina? So I have followed the recommendation of this amazing podcast, <laughs> that rom-com pod, you, my co-host Claire, who recommended Dodie McAllister a couple of epo episodes ago. Oh, good. Yeah, specifically the Marry Me Juliet series. And I was kindly sent the third book in the series, Not Here to Make Friends. And since I haven't read the first two, I'm going to binge read all three in one go. Oh. Now, the third book comes out in January, so I do believe Jody has let me know that I'm going to be the first person to read all three in a row like that, so I'm pretty stoked. You know I like to be an early adopter. I'm really jealous, mm. and I think that's going to be the way to do it, because those three stories, I think when she first started writing it, it was going to be one book, 
mm. because they're all happening concurrently and it was just too much. So she broke, you know, the three couples out. I mean, three. surely that's the only way that she could produce three books nine months apart. Like, that's a big undertaking. Yeah, I mean, you're prolific and I think she's... Well, no, you guys are about on par, three mm. books in two years. Yeah, and we have been messaging, how did you do it? How did you do it? And both agreed... <laughs> Probably not viable moving forward, but for the sake of me being able to binge these books, very grateful to Jodie that she uh, has persisted. <laughs> I can't yeah. wait to hear what you yeah, think. Yeah, I know. I can't. I actually can't wait, and I'm really happy um, that I have direct access to the author as well. God bless Instagram. Yeah, God How bless good is Instagram. It? Claire, what are you reading? I don't know that I would put this in the rom-com camp, but I think if you enjoy... If you enjoy anything, you're going to enjoy this book. It's absolutely massive already, and I think it's only going to get bigger. It's a historical romance called At the Foot of the Cherry Tree by Ali Parker. And to make it even more special, it's based on the true story of Ali's grandparents. Her grandma, Cherry, was the first Japanese war bride to come to Australia after meeting Ali's grandpa, Gordon Parker, um, when he was serving as an ex-enemy soldier in Japan. And this actually relates very hard to Forbidden Love. It does. And I believe Ali has kept the names of her grandparents, but the story is fictionalised. Yeah, it's definitely novelised. Ali comes from a screenwriting background, so, I mean, she's incredibly skilled at narrative. Like she, It's hard to believe this is a debut. She's a really confident writer, and as well as a really well-drawn plot the writing is gorgeous the opening line of this book is just stunning and it kind of keeps up from there I would also say have the tissues handy I mean um, Cherry has been through the bombing of Hiroshima and I know I've heard Ali speak about how difficult that chapter was to write where she talks about Cherry's experience of the bombing but she does a really beautiful job of kind of balancing the deep sadness and the struggle that the couple goes through with you know the lightness and joy of that first love I mean Gordon and Cherry were really young I think when they met she was maybe 17 or even 16 and he was only 18 or 19 um so they they had a meet cute as well right so I think Cherry was cleaning the room yeah you, you've seen Ali speak yeah recently. sorry yeah I should say that as well I um, went to a library talk and yeah I'm so excited to dive into that book because she's such a confident speaker and the stories I could have listened for three hours yeah no she's gonna be a superstar um, and I know that Ali would love to see this made into a film it certainly reads very cinematically and you know I guess you read the story knowing that it's going to be okay but god they go through it Mm. Um, and I guess that's what makes it so extraordinary that these two quite very young people and they've been through a war but you know the resolve that they have to have the periods they're separated they're up against you know the Australian government the white Australia policy and I guess that's the other thing about this story is that you know a lot of people like oh you know what a terrible period of our history thank god things are good now and Really, there are a lot of parallels to situations that are happening even today in Australia. I think, you know, Ali's very deliberately told the story in a way that it's almost a parable for any time. I think there's a lot to take away from it. And I think, yeah, this book's... I think it's already huge, but, yeah, it's mm. going to be massive. Read that. <laughs> <laughs> 
perfect pairing. Yay! So we don't have a pairing with Emhen today, which <laughs> shocking. But our UK queen. Well, right. there's, there's two UK queens, let's be honest. Caroline O'Donoghue, especially with her upcoming or latest release, The Rachel Incident. We're obsessed with her, but we're equally obsessed with Dolly Alderson. Well, if we're talking about UK queens, I'd also throw Vary McFarlane Oh, of, in course, there. of course. I haven't talked about Vary on here yet, which is weird. No, we have. We have. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> Claire. Cut that out. Don't you do the show notes? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so Dolly Alderton, her most recent fiction book was Ghost. So she also has two non-fiction books, um, one which was a breakout hit. Um, Everything I Know About Love. Yeah. And she has an upcoming book in November good material we can not wait for that mm. but for oh did you have something to say about Dolly well I'll just jump in when I get a chance <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you always do the perfect pairing so I want to drive this one do it <laughs> we love Dolly Alderton because well for me what I love about Dolly's writing is the observation and I think Dolly's come up through journalism and through a lot of commentary she's one of she's done a lot of column writing for newspapers in the UK, magazine writing. I mean, she's one of these people who is a personality and, you know, as another very tall woman, I absolutely, when you're a really large lady, it can be, you know, sometimes you want to shrink away. You don't want to be looked at. And Dolly is someone I really admire because she kind of just says, fuck that. She wears heels. I'm going to wear the heels. She wears it, yeah. And, you know, she wears whatever she wants to wear. She looks amazing. Often sourced from Sex and the City, like vintage wardrobes. Like she, yeah, she will talk about mm. the find on eBay. So, you know, all of her nonfiction work is fascinating. And I think it's always really interesting to look at, I guess, I guess as, I don't know if I count myself as a millennial in this way, but, you know, that tradition of, confessional writing or really personal writing. I've even heard Caroline talk about how, you know, there was nothing in her life that she wouldn't write about at that really hungry stage in her early 20s where she was just trying to get her byline out there. And it's almost a blessing that, you know, the website that she wrote for went under. And so a lot of that really personal stuff that she might not choose to share now, thank goodness, has been sort of lost to the ether. Um, and I'm sure, I think I've heard, you know, that Dolly sometimes feels conflicted about the level to which she shared some of these stories, maybe in everything I know about love. But everything I know about love is a love story about friendship. And I think, you know, regardless of how she feels, I hope she doesn't regret it because honestly I think it's given so much comfort to so many women and it was adapted into a tv series which i loved did you like it loved yeah. loved it i've actually rewatched that twice Ooh, mm. it's a very good one anyway that was a really rambling um introduction to because say. if we love dolly this much i mean it means a lot that we're pairing you know someone with dolly yeah like that's huge that's huge and i suppose i haven't talked much about dolly's fiction but again i think that what i love about dolly is the voice the humor the observation and it's almost like every paragraph there's something that is either really funny or feels really true. Mm. Sometimes both at the it's same time. It's so recognisable in a unique way. Yeah. So she was always going to be great at fiction and Ghosts I think has done really well. I really enjoyed it and it's 
as you might have guessed, about a woman who does online dating and meets a dream man who proceeds to completely disappear. Ghost her. Yeah. We think, if you love Dolly Alderton as much as we do, um, that you will be as obsessed as we are with Genevieve Novak's work. And I think both of us would count Genevieve as a friend, but we're not biased. Friend of the pod. (laughs) We have a lot of them. We should have a friend of the pod group. (laughs) I mean, Genevieve is incredibly talented, very young, I think, Uh, and she's published two novels so far, both with HarperCollins, No Hard Feelings, came out, I want to say, early 2022, and Crushing, published this year. I think we've mentioned them before on the pod. Yeah, first episode, I think. To me, the common DNA of Dolly and Genevieve is that observation... But there's this magic trick where somehow the more specific you are, the more relatable it can make something. Mm. I've always thought that with comedy, like my favourite comedians, when they have an example, like they, because you really are taking a huge leap. You're going, I'm this confident in my audience that I'm going all the way there. And it's so much funnier for it because you feel so seen. You're like, that's the brand of toothpaste I use. (laughs) terrible example but you know what I'm saying there's something a little bit burlesque about it where I guess because it is so specific as a reader you're often wondering is it true Mm. you know how deeply is this writer drawing on their personal experience and I suppose that it's a it's a shorthand way of building intimacy Mm. with your reader and between your reader and the character and a Genevieve description or move is so recognizable that I find myself actually thinking in my daily life that's so Genevieve Novak. <laughs> like, I put my retinol oil in the fridge the other day and it was sitting alongside, like, a limp leak. And I was like, that is so Genevieve Novak. <laughs> I think I messaged her and I was like, you take it if you want it. I mean, she has <laughs> millions of ideas and this is, you know, she's the expert at her craft. But that's how great she is at it, that it, I have these identifiable moments in my own life now that I, <laughs> I coin. Genevieve writes complex heroines. And, you know, sometimes morally grey situations or romances. It's really all about the development of those characters. You really go on a journey with them psychologically. She writes friends and supporting characters really well. They're often the most... Fully fleshed out. Yeah, completely. Mm. Her dialogue is so sharp and sassy and clever. I mean, Crushing and No Hard Feelings are both very Melbourne books... Even though I haven't spent that much time in Melbourne, I didn't find that distracting. It made, it really immersed me in the world. I don't know. Recommend. Recommend. <laughs> Recommend. So good. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> We've reached the end. Again. We will link to all of the books and movies that we mentioned in our show notes or you can sign up to our Substack, uh, which we send each time a new episode drops with all the links to the content that we talk about you can follow us on instagram at that romcom pod and please feel free to dm us anything you want to hear about rate and review us wherever you get your podcast we would love you forever and maybe even start shouting out those special (laughs) people on our social media until Uh, next time claire thank you for listening and we will see you next time bye bye